Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Big Daddy Liberty and Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Good morning. Um, as you will hear, Big Daddy Liberty is out on the road. Um, probably hustling and hassling to get views on political issues from the ordinary man in the street. So I was, it was going to be me, just me today, but I'm, I've corralled my guest, who is a colleague, to join me so, because he is a colleague, so I can tell him what to do. And, uh, but he's a, he's a very uh, articulate colleague. So <laughs> articulate colleague Herman Pretorius, welcome to the IRR show. Sarah, thank you so much. And, and do, uh, I, I do slightly feel corralled, but I'm also glad to be corralled. Oh, excellent. Because what we do on the show is essentially is we try to analyze and explain politics, which some may regard as inexplicable, because essentially politics affects everybody in every aspect of their lives. Um, so that's, that's, our, that's our goal. Once we've done that for a while, until about 20 past t- uh, nine, I will get Herman to talk about the IRR's growth strategy, particularly in the context of the fact that growth strategies are almost sort of appearing up on every corner and uh, a lot of them are not really very helpful, particularly the, the strategy that the government and, funnily enough, big business have put out. But we will look at that in depth. And after the, after the first break, we will look at some of the issues that are dominating our politics at the moment. And unfortunately, unlike the lovely story about uh, Braden and his rescue of the guys on uh, the guys out to sea, um, we struggle to find good news stories. I don't know if it's just us or whether this is how we roll. Um, in any event, let's go to our first ad break, and after that, Herman and I will dissect some of the uh, issues of the day. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Herman, the, uh, the issue, the first <laughs> subject I wanted to talk about was the spat between uh, Trevor Manuel and uh, the ANC. And just in, in summary, essentially the <laughs> Trevor Manuel essentially criticised the ANC for everything, for low growth, for the way it's handled things, for the state of the economy, um, you, you name it. And the response he got back from spokesman Pule Mabe was um, – well, let's put it this way. You know that saying about rather let people think you're stupid than uh, open your mouth and confirm it. <laughs> and and this essentially was was Bobby saying he he went on the attack. Um, and the problem with going on the attack is that he's attacking someone who was in government for the for the for the only period that we that the economy actually grew. And mm-hmm. yeah, and and and. You know, he, he's, he's essentially, Marby is saying the quality of life of South Africans has improved tremendously, clean drinking water, housing, education, etc., increase in literacy. And the, the reality is that there was such an increase, and one certainly saw that increase and that betterment in the first 10 years of democracy. But mm. since Zuma took, took the reins, um, those, those gains have, have been re- reversed and probably worse. 
Absolutely. I, I mean, uh, when I shortly after joining the Institute about a year ago, uh, one of our great colleagues, Nick Lorimer, showed me a, a slide uh, that is part of our CEO's presentation, regular uh, scenario presentation, that shows the correlation between a few things. Firstly, um, ANC electoral support. Secondly, houses with access to electricity. Uh, then houses with access to water, um, then quality of life, then the number of violent civil protests. And the wonderful thing, all these elements start correlating quite closely. And if you look at the 2004 election where the ANC got 70% of the vote. Now, this is 10 years after Nelson Mandela, um, uh, you know, uh, mm. broke new ground by becoming the first black president. 10 years after that, you know, historic moment, the ANC managed to do even better um, under Tom Mbeki. Now, Mbeki was by far not your, you know, lovable leader that you would sit down and have a beer with. So the explanation that, uh, you know, leadership and skin color is all that matters falls flat a bit because Mandela was black, yet under Mbeki, the ANC did best. Um, Mandela was charismatic and, you know, loved Mbeki, not so much. So the question then becomes, why did people vote for the ANC in record percentages in 2004? And that really is the success story of the first 10 years of our democracy. There was real progress made. Now, in those years, of course, the, the seeds of destruction were also sown. You have the arms deal, really the, the big daddy, uh, the opposite to big daddy liberty, the big daddy <laughs> corruption of all corruption ever since almost. And you have, of course, the start of race-based policies like BEE. But, under Trevor Manuel, there is no getting away from the fact that South Africa got its fiscal house in order. And because we got our fiscal house in order, the government, therefore not spending more than it took in, we were able to, to actually, after 13 years in the year 2007, hit a budget surplus. What did that mean? That meant the rollout of welfare support to South Africans. At that stage, it was affordable. Now, then, as can, you say, sorry, before, can, can I just interrupt you there? Because I want to just deal with a little bit with mm. that period. One of the comments mm. that Marby made in response to uh, Trevor Manuel's comments uh, was, and I quote, in the recent past, we have been hard at work to ensure we alter apartheid spatial planning by ensuring sp more South Africans live closer to economic opportunities. In 1994, 26 years ago, the ANC inherited a country where the majority of South Africans were excluded from participation in the mainstream economy. And then they took upon themselves opportunity to implement policies, etc. Now, the, the reality is that he's not, he's not wrong. He's just disingenuous because it was because of that, that level of governance up to 2009 that gave exactly those, that sort of dealt with the or partly dealt with the legacy of apartheid and caused that growth and, and, and that satisfaction in what the ANC was doing. What Bob is not saying is that actually it's in the governments since 2009 that, 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 that just started to crumble. And they cannot really go back to apartheid and say, oh, look, see, you know, we were, we were hampered. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I, I'm currently I'm reading a, a, a biography of the, um, the German uh, economics minister just after the Second World War, a guy called Ludwig Erhardt. 
and there is this thing called the the Wirtschaftswunder in in Germany where they uh, manage to within a decade get employment productivity economic growth absolutely uh, booming um by freeing up the markets and the fascinating thing is um that within a shorter time frame the um post-war german west german government got to a point of socio-economic progress than the anc government from apartheid now apartheid was awful and it was terrible but if you tell me that it was more destructive economically than the second world war was for germany i think you have some serious questions uh to to answer if we can get within 26 years if someone who was born the day of the 1994 election is now 26 years old they are old enough to marry old enough to be unemployed and old enough to have a few kids with dependent on the government now that just absolutely makes a mockery of this idea that we can keep on blaming apartheid for everything of course the apartheid legacy is still with us but it's mm. not as simple as saying you know um things are bad therefore apartheid no 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 mr mabe things went better and then you messed it up with what with a bigger government a more expensive government and i think just to close on this issue go uh, very quickly on to the next one before the break um essentially given the fact that the government including the president have lost so much credibility i don't think anyone would take a response like this seriously so i'm not sure in fact whether they I don't think they should have responded at all. But I want to go into very briefly to another subject which is not dissimilar and that is the fact that our uh, finance minister who has a rather um, heavy hand with the twittering tweeting shall I say tweeted <laughs> his dismay at the dismissal of the uh, governor of the Reserve Bank of Z- Zambia and being um uh, being the man he is he he tends to express things in rather inflammatory terms. and as a result um he he basically you know threatened to sort of theoretically invade or 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 take action i think i think people sort of overreacted because i don't see uh, uh, tito mboweni leading you know leading an army but because of his uh, very very certain views on the fact that you don't just fire central bank governors who are trying to control inflation uh, the zambians were not too impressed so the south african government wish to assure the government and the people of Zambia that the unfortunate remarks do not reflect the views of the South African government and its people. Now, I can certainly understand our government apologizing for some of his rather over the top remarks. But when he says that the remarks do not reflect the views of the South African government and its people, is he also saying that we are kind of don't have a problem with dismissing competent um reserve bank governors and that you know you know we 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 kind of would like to do it ourselves if we get half the chance yeah and especially if we take this in the context of the ANC SACP government's recent negotiations and agreement with the IMF the IMF yesterday said and i quote without credible institutions and sound policies sustained economic growth and much needed improvements in living standards will not be possible that's the IMF reaction 
to the Zambian governor's sacking. And, you know, so on the one hand, the South African government can try to, you know, pretend it's working constructively towards growth uh, with the IMF. But then every now and again, they just can't help themselves mm. from really playing the hand, saying that it's more important to um, – to, to maintain, you know, uh, this diplomatic relationship with another country than it is to maintain a trust relationship with your own people. Mm -hmm. And the problem is, if you as an ANC cadre get into more trouble for legitimately criticizing another government's action, then you get into trouble for stealing millions before landing in the KZN legislature as an <laughs> ANC employee. Uh, then okay. you know that's the ANC way. I thought you'd get there, but I'm going to uh, take the opportunity to stop you for our next ad break. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Herman, to get you on to what I actually invited you on for, um, essentially we've, we, we're in a situation where through the auspices of NEDLAC, which is government, business, unions and, and uh, community representatives, uh, each party, I think, uh, it, it's, I think it's, it's rather overkill, but have created um, growth plans, particularly coming out of COVID and the desperate state this economy is is in. And criticism of the, funny enough, both the government's proposal and big businesses' proposal is they centre the growth of the economy around infrastructure development. Um, now, as a as a layman who knows pretty little about these things. What struck me immediately is that growth doesn't necessarily arise from infrastructure. Certain infrastructure has to be put in place because mm -hmm. the, your population needs it there. It, it's not going to per se grow, grow, uh, grow anything in the, in the short term. Um, and there's not really any addressing of the fact that in order to grow economically and to make a so-called inclusive economy, uh, my, one of my least favorite phrases, you actually need to liberalize your economic policy. And this is really what the IRR, it has put out a report to propose an alternative. Herman, you've campaigned on this report. Give us some background. Well, I think it's, uh, it's fascinating that the uh, new business plans and economic plans and financial plans, you know, all sorts of plans coming from the government and business <laughs> for SA and NEDLAC. Um, when you, on, on the surface, I mean, they're, they're nice new shiny uh, covers and packaging and binding and, you know, uh, updated fonts and, and all the spiels that you would expect from 2020. But dig a bit beneath the surface and you meet the year 2010. Uh, quite forcefully in economic policy. The new growth strategy from, or the new growth plan from the ANCs, uh, from a decade ago is really the heart and soul of all these new plans, especially aimed the ANCs and Business for South Africa, where it's just a rehash of old ideas. And not just old ideas that are, you know, that sound bad, old ideas that have been in practice as policy for the last 10 years and that saw us going into the COVID crisis in economic uh, contraction and recession. So we are faced with this nonsense of thinking that because COVID exposed the fundamental weaknesses of the South African economy, built into it by the policies of the last 10 years, the policies of the last 10 years will definitely get us out of this. And I think your, your point about the infrastructure <clears throat> 
is a core point of that. Hundreds and hundreds of billions of rands being proposed to build infrastructure. Now, that's all laudable. As uh, We agree with the government that uh, maintained infrastructure is necessary, but we just, like most South Africans, can put two and two together and understand that if you have debt and you add more debt, you don't suddenly get growth. You can't spend your way out of debt. You can't spend your way out of recession. And yet, that is what all these new plans put forward is – Government must do more of this, more of that. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, we all know that the government cannot spend money it does not have. So the first thing we need to get going is economic growth. And that's really the, the heart of the IRR's plan is to say, how about we have this radical move away from economic policy being driven by redistribution and transformation and simply base economic policy on economic growth? How radical is that? <laughs> well, you see, the, the problem is that if, if, a, if a plan looks too simple and straightforward, uh, it will probably look, be looked at with a great deal of suspicion, uh, as opposed to spending huge amounts of money that you don't have, your, your tax base is decreasing, your credit rating is, is terrible, etc., etc. Um, and th- I think one of the problems with the infrastructure build is one not entirely sure what sort of infrastructure they are going to build or maintain or repair, and, and that's certainly mm. a, a, a bigger issue. So given the fact that we're putting forward the unthinkable, what is it we're putting forward? Well, the first thing that we are putting forward is this idea that uh, economic growth should be the heart of economic policy. Radical, I know. The next things that we propose is if you want to get to economic growth, there are four key objectives. One, attract direct investment. Two, maintain and expand infrastructure. Three, create a climate favorable to job creation. And four, implement programs of widespread economic empowerment, not political elite enrichment. And these are the things that the government at best have been paying lip service to. But someone said the other day, of course they are paying lip service. It's the only payment they can still afford. So we have this problem where we have fundamental suffering and terrible hardship. But fundamentally, these things can be fixed within a very, very short time period. Attract investment, look after infrastructure and expand it, make sure that this is a job-creating environment and economy, and fourthly, implement programs of actual economic empowerment. And there are some very easy, granular, simple policy proposals that we can put to implement each of these four steps. And we believe if these four things are implemented by the year 2030, South Africa can hit 7% of GDP growth annually. I don't think anyone is going to believe you, but one of our co- colleagues, I think it might have been the CEO, made the comment about what we're proposing would pretty much cost nothing. Is it, is it us? <laughs> Yes, because essentially our plan is different from other plans in the sense that it is more what government should stop doing than what government should start doing. And it's, it's, it costs nothing to stop doing stupid things. It costs, of course, political capital. And that's part of why we say, you know, this plan is, uh, is in terms of financial resources, it's quite cheap. In terms of a political cost, 
yet quite expensive. And the three bitter pills, as it were, firstly, have a firm commitment to property rights. There is no way you can attract investment or build a firm economy if you harm property rights. Why? It's very basic. Property rights, your ability to own something, is the basis of your ability to trade something. Your ability to trade something is the basis of economic participation. If you can't own something, you can't trade something. If you can't trade something, you can't participate economically. So firstly, property rights must be protected and sacrosanct. Secondly, get rid of the idiocy of race-based policies. If, if, if policies were measured by good intentions, then I think BEE might, and I say might, have some merit to it. But if you look at the data, why is black unemployment at record highs and the number of ANC millionaires at record highs at the same time? 85% of black South Africans cannot say that they have personally benefited from BEE. It has been an enrichment scheme because by law we have the absurdity where someone like me still paying off student debts is by law advantaged where our multi-billionaire McPresident is disadvantaged by law. So get rid of race-based policies. It is not working and it is detracting from investment. And then lastly, liberalize the labor market. One of the most important things for a young person in this country, and we have high, record terrifyingly high uh, youth unemployment. If you want to get a young person into the job market, you can either try to legislate him into a job and legislate him into higher pay by some nonsense like minimum wage, or you can accept that entry-level jobs by definition are the jobs where two things happen. One you learn valuable skills that propels you into a more successful professional career. And two, you don't get a lot of money in the beginning of your career. Mm. But for some reason, we have kicked down the lower ledges of this uh, climbing uh, face of skills development. And if we don't liberalize the market, if we don't make it possible for low-skilled or unskilled people to give the first steps on the job ladder, we don't have a shot at actually empowering people. So four core pillars and three bitter pulls. These mm. seven things together equate to 7% economic growth by the year 2030. Can you just comment on it? Because one of the things that concerns us at the Institute greatly is the intention by the ANC to adopt the idea of prescribed assets, where essentially they require pension funds and other investment entities to invest in or take shares in state-owned um, state enterprises, which are mostly failing state-owned enterprises. So if you invest anything there, you're likely to get at best nothing back. Um, and you're certainly not going to earn, uh, uh, you're not going to earn on it anyway. One of the things that's sort of come up is that the, the ANC keeps talking about prescribed assets because it's obviously very easy money to, to get hold of. Um, but it knows that there's been a lot of criticism of it. And so it tends to say, no, 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 we're not going for prescribed assets. It's, we won't be going for that. Uh, Enoch Gordon-Guana said that, I think, yesterday or the day before. Mm. Um, what we want, he says, is voluntary investment in these, uh, in these, in these uh, entities. And we'll use prescribed assets if we don't get it. Now, of course, they're not going to mm. get it. So surely... And, and- 
it's it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's voluntary as long as you agree with us to give us your money. If exactly. it, it ceases being voluntary if you don't volunteer, then it becomes compulsory. I mean, it's just beautiful. It reminds me of of the the, the great animated classic Shrek, where the mm. um, the Lord Farquaad says. This is a sacrifice. Um, some of you may die, but this is a sacrifice I'm willing to make. <laughs> so we have this idea where some of your investments might be uh, dumped into the black hole that is ESCOM or SAA. But we as the government, we are willing to make that sacrifice. Look at how brave we are. If something is voluntary, that means you can choose not to do it. Prescribed assets is only voluntary until you refuse to do it. Then they come after you with uh, with state power. Mm. And uh, the problem with state power is uh, when worse comes to worse, if you look philosophically what the state actually is, state power always ends with some form of gun being pointed at you. So mm. if Mr. Gorongwana wants to say it's voluntary as long as you cooperate, I think it is one of the most perverse usages of the word voluntary in the history <laughs> of our country. And the fascinating thing, Sarah, is if if ESCOM was worth investing in, people would people invest would. in it. Absolutely. They the reason, yes, the reason they need to prescribe investment is because no one wanted to invest in the first place. So, I mean, it's, it's just doublespeak. It's nonsense. And the socialist always manages to code their plans, their rather nefarious plans in the most boring terminology thinkable. Prescribed mm. assets, you hear prescribed, ah, oh, that's good. Doctors prescribe things. Assets, ah, oh, that's valuable. So, you know, two good things make a boring thing. It's not a bad thing. No, no, no. Mm. Prescribed assets is a pension grab, is a savings grab, and it's taking the money that you have earned through your life that's already been taxed once and just making it available for government to save its patronage network. Can I can I go back to uh, BEE and and particularly triple B double E, which is a which is a very usually comprises a complex set of charters in industries as to how you should you'll apply the affirmative action um, principles and in order to get uh, access to government contract. And one of the things, I mean, it seems to be wholly writ for the ANC, but it's clearly. It's come out for foreign investment that the top, the number one disincentive to investment in this country is BEE because it's the only country in the world where they would invest, where they would have to give a certain amount of significant ownership to, to people that they don't do business with or don't really have, have much to offer. And it's, 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 it's something I, I'm, that really worries me because I really, I think it's it's so the ANC is so wedded to their style of uh, BE that by its nature uh, foreign investment is just not going to come in. I mean, I mean, just as an example, I remember one company saying um, our, our presence in South Africa comprises three percent of our global presence and one third of our compliance. Yeah, no, it's, it's the, 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 there's a wonderful little book, um, called Comrades in Business, which is, uh, it's a post-liberation politics in South Africa, and it looks a bit at how the BEE tender process, 
really made a generation of, of ANC millionaires. And, and the authors are uh, Kagila Moodley, Frederick von Selslobert, and, and Heribert Adam. Um, mm-hmm. And they look at how BEE really created a generation of wealthy ANC politicians. Now, I think, I think one could be charitable and say that BEE didn't start out as a cadre enrichment crony capitalist scheme. I think there's some merit in that. Some people might have genuinely believed that it is the way to go, thinking black people have been oppressed, therefore we must make laws aimed at black people. The problem is you can then entrench this idea of a non-meritocratic system. Mm -hmm. And that is what really excludes black people because BEE assumes that black people cannot compete on merit. It assumes that black people need the system to be so rigged in their favor that they, 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 they fundamentally are inferior in some way. And I think Steve Biko, ironically, someone with whom the Institute worked well, would absolutely be horrified by this inferiority complex, um, an inferiority complex mirrored, of course, by the Afrikaner nationalists who, who, who again thought the Afrikaner wasn't able to compete on merit, therefore you need job reservation as early as 1922. The whole idea of a race-based beneficial policy is absolutely a form of the state patronizing the people it wants support from. That's at best what BEE might be. What it has morphed into is an opportunity for the richest elite to become enriched through crony capitalism. And I think it's through a, through a tender lottery. Mm. I am a black South African. I'm poor. I'm living in a township. Today I might not have gotten that tender, but as long as I try, that tender lottery might spew out something in my direction and I might make it big. Meanwhile, how about we just say, if you want a job, let's help you be able to get that job. It doesn't need to be a cruel social Darwinist, you know, you don't have a chance black person at, to the back of the queue. It can be black South African, poor South African. We know you've been targeted for a hundred years by bad government. Let's help you get to the point where your merit can earn you the job. Let's not try to cheat or hack our way through the system by pushing you into a job that merit on merit you do not deserve. And on investment, it's terrible. Okay. And, uh, sorry, I have to stop you there, Herman, for another ad break. And we'll come back. I, I just want to pursue this a little further, and then perhaps we can look at some other um, startling or not so startling or weird issues in, the, in our body politic. IFM. 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back, everyone, and welcome back to my guest and colleague, Herman Praturius. Um, I wanted to, I, I th- I'm sure you've seen the little video. It's an interview with a former foreign minister, I think, it, sorry, finance minister of Singapore, and he makes the point that there, were, there are three issues that, that spelt, that spelt success for Singapore. And they make you want to weep when you when, when you hear them. The first is um, is, is merit, meritocracy. The, the society has to be a meritocracy. The second is that um, government has to be pragmatic, and the third is government has to be honest. And I feel as if we almost it's like we've inverted it. We're standing on its head. Mm. 
And there's a weird thing because I think we came pretty close. I mean, mm. it wasn't perfect by no means, but there was a time when, uh, I, I, I think you can say a lot of things about Nelson Mandela, but I don't think you can say he's dishonest. And mm. I think you can say a lot of things about Tito Mbaweni, but I don't think you can say he's dishonest. There was a, there was a, a decade where South Africa came so close to ticking those three boxes. Mm. My goodness, how far we've fallen. Mm-hmm. And then just to go back to um, BEE, can you just give us a little bit of, just to show people what, what BEE can be that is meaningful, what the Institute proposes, what our sort of core, um, uh, uh, set of, set of ideas is for, uh, employment equity. Yeah. So, um, the Institute is, I mean, we are overtly, uh, ideological in our pursuit. We, we don't pretend to be anything other than freedom loving South Africans. And this, um, this ideology really translates into a true empowerment pursuit to make sure that we can really allow South Africans the freedom to monetize their skills and through that to develop their skills. So that's the first core of our, of our, you know, approach to this issue. But then we did some polling. And the wonderful thing about the polling findings was that the majority of South Africans echo our approach to employment equity and job creation and hiring. 22% of South Africans agree that merit alone should be the basis for, um, uh, employment. However, 58% of South Africans say merit should be the guiding principle with special training and for the disadvantaged. Now, I think that that 60% majority slap bang in the common sense middle of South Africa really represents the best of South Africa. It's this idea that, of course, people have been disempowered, disenfranchised and excluded economically for a hundred years. But now the question is, what can we actually do to improve their lives? Not to slap each other on the back in Parliament. What can we do to improve their lives? Well, I think listen to what has happened before and listen to the people. Because what, not what has happened before, what has worked before. And what we suggest is quite simple. Instead of race being a proxy for disadvantage, look at disadvantage. Help those who need help not help those who sort of resemble other people who need help. We already do means testing in South Africa for many things, for especially social grants and welfare support. We already have a system of checking whether a South African is below a certain poverty line to uh, to receive support from, from the government in one of several forms. So we already have this idea of means testing certain forms of policy. The Institute's proposal is quite modest. Do means testing for employment. If someone is disadvantaged, help them to become advantaged, irrespective of whether they're black or white. If someone is disadvantaged, they deserve our help. It's not about black people or white people or colored people. It's about getting help to those who need. And that's the core of the EED scheme, economic empowerment for the disadvantaged, to make sure we get away from this toxic concoction of BEE and make sure that only the people who need help 
of this special kind of and drastic sort can really get it. Mm-hmm. Can I, in the last few minutes, um, look to one of the things that the government should not do, uh, go back to what the government should not do, and that is it should not implement the NHI, the National Health Insurance. And mm-hmm. one of the things, and perhaps you can comment on this, one of the things that was really fascinating, to, that has been fascinating to watch during lockdown is that a number of senior people, including the health minister and the president, have praised the, you know, the NHI and we're going to implement it da, 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 at the very time where the worst of the, of the health system, which many of us know and recognize and have seen before, was on display. I mean, in, in the mm-hmm. most embarrassing, embarrassing way. Now, mm-hmm. I, I would like to think that NHI is just a non-starter just because it is so expensive that even if we weren't debt-ridden, we wouldn't be able to afford it. Um, and the, the infrastructure that you need to support NHI is humongous. A lot of repair needs to be done and isn't there. So why mm-hmm. are they even talking about it? Well, you, you should see expropriation without compensation, prescribed assets, NHI. You should see these as cousin policies, all related to each other through the single and villainous ancestor of expropriation. NHI is the de facto expropriation of healthcare resources and health choice. It is the nationalization of an entire industry. Now, the thing is, not only, as you correctly say, is NHI, you know, incredibly expensive, so expensive, in fact, that in the latest edition of the proposed legislation on NHI, no cost was given. If you ask an ANC MP, as I have repeatedly, you say, how are we going to pay for this? The best answer they can come up with is, no, we must. Yes, but that doesn't answer to the question. How do we pay for it? No, we really must pay for it. I mean, that is, that is, that's not even university politics. That's playground politics. That is the kind of politics you engage in when you are still eating sand and clay. And the problem we have here with the NHI is its inaffordability is just part of the problem. It then removes the ability of people to choose their own health care. And you know the tragic thing, Sarah, is it doesn't have to be this way. If you look at the failures of the NHI project, if you look at the failures of the health system, you might think the fact that the majority of testing during the most crucial phase of the COVID-19 pandemic was done by the private sector. You might think that might have the ANC government pause and reflect and think, my Goodness, even in a time of crisis, with all the necessary, almost dictatorial powers that the crisis gave us, Mm. uh, we couldn't manage our health system to actually be sensible to use as Mm. uh, a, a mechanism for keeping our people healthy. And there you run into that issue of pragmatism. A pragmatist would be able to look at the NHI, look at government health care, and look at the COVID crisis and the governments respond to it and see NHI is a non-starter. But we don't have pragmatists in government. We have um, obsessive ideologues in government. And it, it, it doesn't have to be this way. The government over the last 10 years has made medical coverage prohibitively expensive in such a way that you have absurdly expensive plans 
that should, by law, include things that the person buying the plan in the first place would never have wanted included in their plan in the first place. Government mm. regulation has priced people out of the ability to get health care. And now the government is using that as an excuse to drive yet another project, yet another scheme, yet another grand plan. And it's like Ronald Reagan said in, in I think, 64 – You'd think sometimes the more the planners plan and the more they see their plans fail, they would sometimes just give us the scoreboard saying, ah, our plans have done this, have done that. Nothing from that sort. The more the planners plan, the more the plans fail, the more the planners plan. (laughs) Herman, I'm going to thank you and stop you at that point, having taken you sort of roundabout in in all directions in this discussion. We need to go for another break. But I, you, I, I will let you off to go and do whatever it is you plan and don't plan to plan. And thank you very much for uh, for being here as guest and uh, and a little bit of partnering. Thank you, Sarah, as always. Hi FM, your station of choice since two thousand and eight. Welcome back for the last few minutes of the IRR show. We're going to. I look. Briefly at what I think is going to come up in the next uh, week or so, and certainly I think what's going to be a rolling issue is going to be COVID-related uh, corruption. It's going to come out. I mean, there's an article, I think, today about how uh, one participant in a PPE medical supply scam uh, made an 800% markup. On PPE. Now, the the thing that's really galling about this is, is as I recall, Diskim had to bow to the the um, competition authorities over having marked up masks to about twelve rand per mask or whatever it was at the outset. It really wasn't significant. Um, in the long run, the the fine has not been as, as onerous as it would have been. But it's actually. It's just compl- it's completely hypocr- hypocritical because in the overall scheme of things, the level of PPE type corruption has has disgusted South Africa to an inordinate extent, and it's going to go on. And I think part of it is going to be the case of the former mayor of uh, of Durban, Zandile Gamudi, who uh, has been charged with uh, corruption on a I think it's a 450 million rand uh, uh, solid waste removal deal. She she has actually been charged and she's uh, she's out on bail for 50,000 rand. Now that's a high bail amount in in the South African system. And what's happened? She's been made a member of the legislature of the province of KwaZulu-Natal. So it's that sort of thing that I think is going to loom really large and everything that has to do with uh, economics and uh, and the poor state that our economic situation is in. So what I'd like to just ask you and is if you would like to read more of what we write and, and the podcast that we do, please go to... Uh, dailyfriend.co.za, which is the the website for our online portal. If you would like to get access to the report on the growth strategy, go to irr.org.za stroke reports, and you'll find it there. If you would like to support the IRR in the work they do on the same um, website, you will find a, if you go onto the website, you'll find a fund us uh, button, and we'd be delighted to have your to have your funds. Um, it would help in the fight 
for uh, liberal ideals and practical and pragmatic policies. So having said that, um, I thank you for being with me. I won't be here next week. Hopefully I'll be uh, uh, on a bit of a holiday, which has become a rare thing in these months of COVID, and I'll see you the week after that. Keep well.